0: Welcome to Great Ideas, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson, and the eyes of the world have been squarely focused on the war in Ukraine for the past month. One of the most significant, heart-wrenching, and long-lasting impacts of any war is the flood of civilian refugees trying to escape the violence. More than 3.5 million people have fled Ukraine since Russia invaded on February 24th, according to the United Nations Refugee Agency. It's the fastest moving refugee crisis in Europe since the end of World War II. The massive displacement of millions of people threatens not only a humanitarian disaster, but an ongoing challenge for European nations and the United States. So today, on Great Ideas, addressing the refugee crisis from the war in Ukraine. Elisa Massimino is a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress and executive director of the Human Rights Institute at Georgetown Law. She led a team that recently issued a report titled, What the European Union and the United States Need to Do to Address the Migration Crisis in Ukraine. Elisa, welcome to Great Ideas.
1: Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Well,
0: it's a pleasure to have you. I I don't think anyone wants to think about or focus on the, the refugee crisis. It's one of the most horrible things that one can imagine. This kind of, you, you lose your home, you're, you're fleeing a war. So I, I can't say that it's it's an upbeat topic, but it's an incredibly important one. And I think it's one that people are, are, are kind of reluctant to engage with. So I, I was hoping that maybe we could kind of start at the top and set the context for the current crisis. How does the world... Deal with refugees from wars like the war in Ukraine in general, and how has that approach evolved over the years?
1: Sure. Well, you know, people have been on the move since the beginning of time for lots of different reasons. Um, but one of those reasons is uh, is is war, violence, persecution. Sadly, that's a phenomenon that uh, uh, that has been with us from from the beginning of, of time. So, um, but it really is relatively new uh, system that evolved after uh, World War II and the Holocaust and the, just the, the massive uh, number of refugees uh, fleeing violence and persecution in that war. And the world community came together uh, to do a lot of things, create the United Nations, um, adopt the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, Uh, which uh, is kind of the the framework for for respect for human rights around the world. And out of that universal declaration um, uh, flowed a lot of treaties and uh, agreements between states, some of them them binding. Um, And the right to seek and enjoy asylum was included in the universal declaration of human rights as a really fundamental Uh, uh, right that all uh, human beings have by virtue of of their humanity. So it came from there. And then um, out of the Universal Declaration, as I said, came a lot of different human rights treaties focused on civil and political rights and economic, social and cultural rights, but also came the 1951 Refugee Convention, um, which got granular about how, uh, what rights refugees have as people, as humans, um, and what obligations uh, states have uh, to protect those who come knocking at the door uh, seeking protection? That original uh, convention was limited to uh, World War II refugees, but then a, a subsequent protocol, the 1967 protocol, which is what the United States is a party to, uh, stripped away those geographic and time restrictions. But essentially, you know, the 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 obligation of states is that you cannot send somebody back to a place of danger. Um, now, uh, there's a lot of technical language about what, you know, what is a refugee, how do you, because we know from our own experience here in the United States that you know, not everybody who's in a desperate situation qualifies under the fairly rigorous definition of, of what is a refugee. Um, but uh, but we can talk about that later, but just in terms of the bigger picture, you know, that also coming out of that convention was created uh, the UN High Commissioner for Refugees. And UNHCR is the, is the kind of global body that oversees the protection of refugees, the compliance by states uh, with their obligations um, and and also operates uh, you know, refugee humanitarian uh, uh, relief operations dealing with refugee um, movements, massive movements, um, and tries to cajole states because there's no there's no real enforcement mechanism for these uh, treaties uh, to live up to those obligations. So that's it. That that is the you know the the, the global framework. And then of course every country has its own immigration system, its own um, way of dealing with asylum seekers. Uh, and, uh, and that's kind of where the rubber meets the road. You know, I was often. going to
0: ask you about that. How does the U S fit into that picture? What has her approach been with, with dealing with refugees and how has that evolved?
1: So, um, the United States, uh, after, after world war II, and as the, with the advent of these, um, human rights, Uh, declarations and treaties and mechanisms, you know, a lot of that got caught up in the Cold War dynamic, um, almost immediately after uh, um, after these mechanisms were adopted. Uh, And, you know, there was a way in which the United States and other countries um, used the idea of offering refuge as kind of a tool in the, you know, ideological battle during the Cold War. Um, so very generous for people fleeing you know, communist regimes and not as generous for, uh, towards those who didn't. Um, but then in 1980, uh, Congress passed the, the Refugee Act that really for the first time defined in US law, who is a refugee um, and what, uh, you know, what obligations uh, will the US live up to and implement in its domestic system. Uh, and that that became the you know that's where you find the definition of refugee, which is reflected in the international agreements that a refugee is someone who is outside of their country uh, of origin um, because of persecution uh, or fear of persecution, well-founded fear on account of of, of one of five grounds: race, religion, nationality, um, political opinion or membership membership in a particular social group. And then of course the law uh, has evolved to define what those things mean, but but it's a fairly tight uh, uh, and and rigorous uh, definition which often means that people fleeing generalized violence or war um, may not even qualify. And then in the United States, what we have is kind of a bifurcated system. So we have a refugee resettlement program, which brings in people who have been vetted and designated as refugees. And they come uh, usually through, you know, uh, they, they are received by and assisted by, um, by organizations, non-governmental organizations, that contract with the State Department to provide kind of a, a, a landing had for uh, for people help them get settled, they're entitled to some minimal support and help them start to rebuild their lives here. That's the refugee resettlement program and that's the one that you know that the, the Trump administration essentially um, uh, shut down um, among other things. Uh, and then there's the asylum system, which is where people, desperate people come and knock at the door and say, I'm on the run, let me in. Uh, and, and that's a different process uh, that can either be, um, those people can also have, be inside the United States um, and they ask for asylum and they go through an administrative process where it's determined whether they, whether they fit the definition. Um, so that's, it's, it's heavily bureaucratic and it, it, right now it is hopelessly mired in, uh, in a backlog. Um, that is really, uh, has mostly ground the thing to a halt. Uh, So that's where the U.S. has been on, and that's kind of the the legal mechanisms whereby somebody who's really desperate can get protection here.
0: Since you invoked the T word a moment ago, obviously that alludes to the fact that ah, dealing with refugees is a fraught topic. And it's something that you've addressed. You actually made a case in the keynote address at a symposium in 2017 called The Border and Beyond the National Security Implications of Migration, Refugees, and Asylum Under U.S. International Law. There's a mouthful of a title. Market <laughs> marketing advice. Shorter title, people. You, you presented what you said you hoped was a pragmatic case, a strong pragmatic case for refugee protection, that it was sort of a self-interested case for, for nations to consider. What is that pragmatic self-interested case for why countries should protect refugees?
1: Well, uh, you know, it's, it's not original to me. In fact, you know, at the very beginning of the, you know, the post-World War II, uh, era, you know, people think about the Universal Declaration of Human Rights as kind of this, in a way, utopian, uh, document about, you know, ideals of human rights, and it really at, at core is a, is a national security <laughs> document. It is, uh, you know, countries came together and said, we just went through hell and, you know, almost lost the world uh, to Nazism, fascism. And what is the answer to how we can have that never happen again? the answer is respect human rights. Um, And if you don't, uh, that will, we know where it leads now. Um, And so that was really, you know, at the center of the thinking um, of states when they devised this system. And protection of refugees is part of that because, I mean, we don't need to look that far back to see what happens when refugees are not protected. So at the core of this is, you know, you start with protecting human rights. If we can succeed at that, we're not going to have a refugee crisis, right, that's at the center. People don't get up and flee. They like to be where they are, they like to have, you know, their language and their families and their homes and nobody gets up and leaves that unless, you know, they are in desperation. Um, so. You want to deal with those root causes for sure, um, but when people are are uh, having to flee, um, you know, if we don't have a system that accurately uh, and, and um, adequately protects them, then we have people who are look at the Syria crisis. You know, two million of of the at least of the refugees who fled Syria were children. That's an entire generation of people who, if not cared for and educated and supported, um, become desperate, become you know, also potentially recruits uh, vulnerable to extremist organizations. Um, you know, so it is very much in the world's interest to, uh, to have a system that's adequate to deal with refugees and treat them humanely, allow them to restart their lives and think about the massive loss of, uh, of, you know, human potential that is uh, that that refugee crises uh, left on you know addressed uh, presents to the world. Um, it, it's tragic, not just for the individuals involved, but for all of us. And uh, if we want stability, security, then we cannot let these things get out of control, and we have to. Um, respect people's rights and help them restart their lives.
0: It's a really compelling case. And at the same time, I'm glad you brought up the recent example of Syrian refugees. I had a a bit of a driveway moment, you know, when you're listening to a radio program or a podcast, I hope people get that listening to great ideas from time to time, where I heard a recording of uh, German citizens greeting Syrian refugees at a train station in 2015 and singing to them, you are welcome here. But I think we all know that that was just a prelude to a backlash. And the backlash has been very unpleasant and something that many European countries are still grappling with, Germany in particular, and has been brought to mind, particularly in the last few weeks, as Europe once again deals with an influx of refugees. What are... (laughs) what are sort of the lessons learned and 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 sort of the, the ramifications of that recent experience dealing with syrian refugees is this is this a case basically of of racism and um, a fear of of uh, predominantly muslim refugees is is that sort of a, a root cause and a distinguishing characteristic here that that isn't being repeated in ukraine or have there been even subtler kind of changes and adaptations made in recent years that are going to help European countries to deal more productively with the Ukrainian refugee crisis?
1: Well, I think it's both. Uh, there's just no getting around uh, the, that there is a r- racial component to this. I mean, if you listen to uh, European, some European politicians talking about the Ukrainians, know you have Viktor Orban in Hungary who was you know line in the sand no no migrant will cross you know all of that and you know now it's Ukrainians welcome uh you know and you what is that about well I mean there it's complicated but there's no uh there's no doubt that that racism plays a part in that and you know there were Really troubling reports coming out from the border between Ukraine and Poland. Um, you know, there were tens of thousands of uh, of non-Ukrainian, um, mostly foreign students in Ukraine, right, like African students. Yes, uh, Morocco, um, uh, Azerbaijan, um, Nigeria, uh, who were fleeing and were subjected to terrible discrimination actually on both sides of the border with Ukrainians, you know, pushing people to the back of the line and, um, and reports of, of having crossed into Poland, not getting the same access to the generosity, um, that, that the Poles were, um, were providing to, uh, Ukrainian nationals. So, you know, there's clearly that, um, you know, you get, you get, uh, I think it was the Bulgarian leader saying, you know, these are not the refugees that we're used to. These are these mm. are educated people. These, you know, the implication is, you know, from the Middle East and Africa, you know, we don't want those people. They're not like us, you know. And and obviously, you know, we are as humans tend to be tribal, uh, tribal people. Um, but so that's a piece of it for sure. But one of the lessons I think that we should be learning uh, from the from the Syrian situation, refugee situation is that, you know, we we have to plan and and fund for the long haul. Um, You know, the UNHCR has kept track of of refugees since, since World War II. And, you know, what they're finding now is that, you know, refugees are stuck in protracted situations, you know, for long, long periods of time, sometimes more than a decade. Um, and, uh, and we need to be planning for that uh, and funding for that. Um, there are more wars lasting longer that are more violent um, than ever before. And those, that's going to produce um, desperate people on the move. And we have to have a system that deals with that and, and protects them.
0: And just as a very quick question, because we are coming up on a break on WKXL, there is a, a, a bit of a distinction to be drawn between people who are internally displaced within the borders of a country and people who are displaced as refugees across borders. Are, are there any nuances there that our listeners should understand as they think about the Ukrainian refugee crisis?
1: Yes, uh, there are, because you know, in, in many ways, well, so we have th- over 3 million uh, Ukrainians who have crossed the border and become refugees, but it's nearly double that inside Ukraine, um, uh, people who have been forcibly displaced from their homes. And those people don't get refugee status, right? They, 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 uh, they need humanitarian assistance and protection where they are, or we need to uh, uh, build some Uh, pathways to safety for those people Um, and and that is an even you know in many ways an even more urgent and complex problem.
0: I, I really do want to dive in a little bit further into what's been going on on the ground with the situation in Ukraine. So you issued your report about three weeks ago as we record this at the beginning of March Obviously, things have evolved a great deal. It's it's a very fast-moving situation uh, in Ukraine and in the neighboring countries that are absorbing the bulk of these refugees. So maybe you could just update us. What's been happening from your perspective as you track all of this since your report was issued three weeks ago? And, and what's the current situation like today?
1: Well, just uh, thinking about the pace uh, in which this has uh, evolved, you know. When we wrote that report, I think there had been 500,000 uh, Ukrainians who had fled the country. Today, as you said, we're nearly three and a half million. Um, so it is escalating very quickly. Um, one of the things that was not at all a foregone conclusion, and that we were hoping for and calling for, was um, was that Ukraine's neighbors would open their borders and generously. Uh, Welcome Ukrainians and care for them, and that has been really, uh, for the most part, a beautiful thing to behold. Um, you know, we can talk about and should talk about, and have started to talk about, um, you know, the the obligations that states have and the discrimination that refugees of color, in particular, um, and from particular regions of the world, have faced. Um, but but we really have to. Uh, celebrate the way in which Europe has geared up to welcome Ukrainians and care for them. That is a good news story and it should be an example um, for how we treat all refugees. Crises like this is where norms of uh, international law and protection really get pressure tested. And so it's a moment to, to demonstrate a recommitment to those principles and to the international law that flowed from those principles to protect refugees. So that's a good thing. Um, And the money has been coming uh, through the UN. I think the appeal that was issued to states um, has produced the highest uh, level of donations in the fastest period of time of any such appeal uh, for any refugee crisis. So um, states will need to make good on those promises Uh, But but it is encouraging to see that, you know, the um, the commitments coming from all countries, including the United States. What we can tell from looking at the horrific damage that's being done uh, to Ukraine is that, as we spoke about earlier, most refugees, they stay close to home because they want to go home. But we all know that, you know, for many of them, there's not going to be a lot to go home to for some time. So it's really important now to follow up that you know initial uh, burst of compassion with some real structure and organization. I mean, it's mostly been two million of those three and a half million have gone to Poland, and and most of what's happening in Poland right now that you're seeing you know on the news and in the front pages of are volunteers who are helping refugees as they come over, feeding them, clothing them, helping them find transportation in their way to, to relatives, that now has to be uh, institutionalized and supported and, and really be a state-led effort. Uh, keeping volunteers you know, engaged, but really um, we need, one of the hallmarks of a volunteer operation is that you don't, you don't necessarily have the infrastructure uh, to record and, and, and register people that's really, really important uh, for lots of reasons, but, um, but one of the key reasons is that uh, the vast majority, 90% of these refugees uh, are women and children um, and, and many of them are unaccompanied children. This is an extremely vulnerable population. So we always have to worry about the risks of exploitation, of human trafficking, and without registering people and being able to keep track of them and also keep track and, and, and know something about the people who are stepping up to volunteer, um, we increase the risk that uh, that people will be um, uh, exploited um, and, and possibly trafficked. So we, we have to make sure that that, that happens next. Um, on the policy level as well in Europe, it's been really um, good to see that they activated for the first time this um, temporary protection directive, uh, which means that Ukrainian refugees will automatically get protection and a kind of baseline level across Europe uh, of protection, the ability to work, access benefits, and all of that um, for a year and, and up to three years. So that's, that's huge um, because, you know, part of what happened in the past with the Syrians and, and with many other, uh, and what we see in our own country is that, you know, having to go through um, the regular system to establish your eligibility uh, on an individual basis is, you know, terribly time-consuming, can be traumatic for people who are already traumatized, uh, and this uh, implementing this directive uh, across Europe will enable people to get on their feet and get integrated, and you know, start to live a you know some semblance of of, of, of a normal life, get their kids into school and all of that, uh, while we um, you know also work furiously to 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 accomplish the one thing that is at the root of all of this, and that is end the war.
0: I really wanted to highlight the point you made a moment ago about sort of the good news envelope about this. Because boy, could we all use a little bit of good news in this situation. And I did have another one of those driveway moments. Here's a, here's a, the evolution of media. I used to have a driveway moment listening to the radio or a podcast. Now I had it with a video that I found on Twitter of volunteers going to the Polish border and literally showing up in their cars and kind of a self-organized effort. You know, people with spreadsheets saying, oh, I've got a, I've got a room here. I've got a bed here. Let me take this family. In fact, A friend of mine who is Ukrainian has actually dropped everything in his life and gone to the Polish border. And he is obviously, he's providing money and he's helping coordinate and he speaks the language and people are stepping up to do incredible things. And I wanna acknowledge that because I think we all, it's so easy to get down in the mouth about the nature of uh, uh, the human spirit at a moment like this, that it's it's helpful to me to hear that that there is that aspect to this story, but I also did want to then follow up on on the, the second point you made, which is that there does need to be a transition here. And one of the things you called for in your report, which is now three weeks ago, but I think still stands up, is kind of highlighting some of the steps that need to happen as we move from this volunteer effort. And I wanted to ask you, you know, as this becomes more of a systematized. Um, coordinated approach. Where does that come from? You alluded to the presumptive uh, uh, refugee status that's been granted. That sounds like an EU step. So does the coordination and sort of the systemization of all of this, does that come from the EU? Does it come from the UN? Does it come from individual countries kind of banding together and coordinating bilaterally or multilaterally? What does that look like?
1: So, it's a mix of those things, I think, is um, and the UN, I think, has now designated a special representative to uh, to be the point person for the United Nations on the refugee effort. Um, and I think the EU, if they haven't already, uh, I think they have now designated a person in charge there too. Um, there will be people in each state also that are, you know, in the whatever the respective migration, Um, ministries that will work together, but having, you know, really key to this has been the will be the, the um, temporary protection directive, because that establishes the, you know, the baseline standard of protection that will be required of every state in Europe, so that that's really going to be, you know, on the policy level, that will be the the framework, the baseline and then um, financially. The money will come through fair, various channels, um, and individual states are making pledges through the UN, um, and uh, and the EU is stepping up with huge amounts of money. Um, you know, these are pledges at this point, so those have to be you know those have to be fulfilled. Um, but the United States, I think, just announced another tranche of of support for um, uh, for refugees. Everyone has a stake in making sure that. Uh, that this is as stable uh, and uh, undramatic a situation as possible. You know, during the Syrian refugee crisis, which is ongo- uh, ongoing, um, you know, people talked a lot about uh, Putin's desire to, you know, quote unquote, weaponize refugees against Europe, and you know, there were ways in which he was successful in doing that, and and and. I think Europe has learned a lesson of seeing what the ramifications of a failure to deal responsibly uh, with, with uh, war refugees from Syria, um, the impact that that had on the political system. I mean, we have it here in our, I mean, you know, when, when uh, Trump started his campaign for president, you know, immigrants were uh, right in the bullseye of, uh, of his campaign. And you know, at home we are still grappling with those policies. You know, there are actually some Ukrainians trying to come in over our southern border, and we still have the Trump era uh, Title 42, is what it's called, but it is you know this this bogus use of an old um, uh, you know public health law that Trump used to essentially shut down the asylum system at the border, and. Everybody, including Ukrainians, Venezuelans, people who, you know, I think most Americans instinctively understand why we need to protect them, um, are being turned away uh, because the Biden administration has has kept this policy in place. So that that's one element that that needs to be fixed. I mean, one of the other things that happens in crisis is we see all of the fault lines, all of the places where your system isn't working and uh, those just get exacerbated in a crisis. And I mean, it's like an X-ray if you will, you know, it shows all the, all the flaws and, and I hope what we do when we see all of that revealed so clearly is that we rush to fix them because you know, we do not have a system right now that is equipped for the challenge of the day.
0: Well, speaking to your point about the domestic US response, according to Reuters, which reviewed US State Department data, only seven Ukrainian refugees were resettled in the US between March 1st and March 16th. Now, as we record this, it was just reported yesterday that the Biden administration plans to launch an effort this week to make it easier for some Ukrainians fleeing from the invasion to get admitted. But and as you pointed out, there, there is some, some funding coming from the U.S. There are, there are steps underway, but could you walk us through a little bit of what's possible? What, what can and what should the U.S. be doing now as part of our piece of the response to the refugee crisis?
1: Yes. Well, so uh, I saw that announcement yesterday. It was pretty vague. Um And, you know, we're waiting for details. I mean, one thing the Biden administration has done, it was low hanging fruit, very easy, was designate Ukraine under this temporary protected status statute. Um, Not really similar, a little bit similar to what I talked about for Europe, but it is just, it protects people who are already in the country. Ukrainians who are already in the United States who obviously can't be sent back, even if they don't have status. So this gives them a temporary status. So that's one thing, Um, you know, I I think that the, uh, you know, the administration in September, they uh, had the consultation with Congress where they set the refugee resettlement limits. Um, Remember that's where the people who get designated as refugees outside the country and then are are brought here and they have status as they arrive, um, that that has to be boosted. And, you know, I think the U.S. ought to a lot you know, at least 100,000 slots over a couple of years uh, to Ukrainians. Part of that is to address the need, but it also is important to demonstrate leadership. You know, the United States has really fallen down in a big way over the last, I would say 10 years or so in living up to its domestic law, uh, on refugee protection, certainly international law. And it's time to step up. and the the Biden administration has a lot of repair work to do uh, to the system as a whole. Um, but it can um, I mean, the voice of the United States is still very, very important in the world, particularly on issues like this. So we should be joining the global compact on on Refugees. This was something that the you know the the Trump administration, you know, tore up and threw in the trash. There's a global agreement among countries about, you know, kind of renewing a commitment to the to the principles of refugee protection. Um, and you know, uh, Secretary Blinken during the Obama administration was really a leader on on issues of uh, refugee protection and engaging the private sector um, in uh, in providing jobs and innovative ways of 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 um, of integrating refugees into uh, into society, give, you know, providing them with um, with the support that they need to start succeeding. Um, and we know from our experience, you know, we keep forgetting as a country, but refugees renew America. You know, they are, um, you know, they are in many ways the prize of um, of a you know an inspiring. Uh, system and a vibrant country. Um, Winning that prize in many ways uh, will will strengthen us and make us more productive and more vibrant. Um, There is nobody who believes more in the ideals of democracy than a person who has fled repression and finds freedom. Those are the people we want on our team. Um, so in some ways, you know, we, we should be uh, competing to make sure that we are the most hospitable and the most um, supportive to allow people to really um, reach their, their God-given potential.
0: Well, it's one of the great ironies of world history that by creating such a talented pool of refugees, Nazi Germany sowed the scenes of their own, their own destruction. And it was that generation of mostly Jewish, German-Jewish scientists who allowed us to win World War II. And of course, we're only having this conversation today because the United States took in my forebears who were fleeing Cossacks in this case, um, who were burning their villages to the ground, literally, uh, in Russia. And so I, I couldn't agree more with your point. And I think that most Americans get that inherently. And I, I, I have seen an outpouring of a desire for people to do more. And actually, I wanted to ask you about that. What, what can people do? Obviously, most of these efforts are, you know, as you said, they need to transition from volunteer efforts to a more systematized, nationalized, and, and multilateral set of, of coordinated efforts. But people still have a desire to help. What's the best way that our listeners who care about this issue can help?
1: There are a number of ways. Uh, one, of course, uh, is is to donate um, financially. There are a number of organizations that are on the ground uh, in host countries that um, that will need uh, you know funding for the long haul. Um, one of the things that the that the Biden administration announced um, before the Russia's invasion of Ukraine was. Uh, was a pilot program for individual sponsorship of refugees. So that Americans can come together, either their church or synagogue or their community group and say, we wanna sponsor a refugee uh, family and we will help them integrate. So this helps to deal with the decimation that the Trump administration uh, perpetuated on the, um, perpetrated on the, on the refugee resettlement uh, structure and to help, to help speed up the capacity of the United States to welcome refugees. So individuals um, can, uh, can actually step forward and, um, and welcome people into their communities. And that's also a beautiful thing because it builds that kind of resilience um, and understanding among Americans uh, about the role that refugees can play in the future of our country.
0: Obviously, there's no way to tell what the future of the war in Ukraine will be. That's one of the biggest questions hanging over the world right now. But based on your experience tracking refugee situations for decades, what are the prospects for the future for the millions of people who have now been displaced from Ukraine? Obviously, major cities like Mariupol have been uh, razed to the ground, lit- literally bombed out of existence. And so there may be places that even if the war ends, these refugees cannot return to. So what, what do those future prospects look like? Will, will the majority of them be absorbed into other countries? Will, will they, is there a prospect that they will be able to return to Ukraine and any thoughts about that?
1: Well, um, I think it will be a mix of those things um, depending on the, um, on Russia's actions. Um, but as I said, you know, the majority of the refugees right now are, um, are women and children. So families are separated. And one of the things that Europe will need to deal with is, is how, to, uh, how to reunite families. The families want to be together. Um, so that will be a big challenge. Um, you know, certainly one of the things that we're all learning uh, from, uh, from this horrible horrible war, is that the Ukrainians are a proud and resilient people, and they are dedicated to building a stronger, better uh, Ukraine. And so I do think that, that, you know, there's a reason that people who have to flee stay close to home. Um, They want to go back. They want to rebuild. And that will obviously require uh, an enormous uh, amount of resources. And you know we haven't talked about the accountability side of all of this, but um, but but a huge part of that rebuilding um, funding should be coming from the perpetrators of this atrocity.
0: And I guess my final question is: based on everything that you've studied and tracked, and the experience that we're going through now, if you could, if you could. Introduce one innovation, one change into the way the world coordinates to help refugees in a situation like this, and hopefully there won't be as many of them in the future. But we know the way these things go. What What would you change? What What would that innovation be?
1: Well, it's because of what you said. Uh, we know how these things go. Sadly, we do. We know how these things go, and that means that we need to do a better job of planning. So. I, I think one innovation would be to stop you know, thinking about refugee crisis as, you know, as a, a kind of moment in time and start thinking about this as atrocity prevention, thinking that, because that is why people move. So if you want to reduce the numbers of people who have to flee, you've got to get ahead of that. You have to start earlier, you have to be committed for the long haul to addressing those root causes and taking seriously um, what happens when people's rights are violated. You know, the Syrian civil war, you know, the, what happened when, when, when uh, Assad uh, tortured a group of teenagers who spray painted, you know, anti-regime graffiti. Um, that, that one incident before the, before the war started was a was a warning sign uh, that um, that we'd entered a new stage of repression there. And thinking ahead about what could happen and what the stakes really are at an earlier stage um, could have prevented a world of misery.
0: Well, thank you for helping us think about the refugee crisis as part of that continuum of human rights. And uh, Elisa Masmino, thank you also for walking us through a better understanding of the refugee crisis from the war in Ukraine.